Hello. Good evening. Um, thank you for coming out on this very rainy night to talk about um, the Yahara 2070 project. Um, my name is Heather Allen, and I work for the council as a legislative analyst. And we are excited to have um, the scientists from the University of Wisconsin here today to tell us about their research about future visions for the Yahara watershed over the next well, through 2070. And the reason that we thought it was important to have these academics come here and talk to us about what, what it might look like, what the future might look like, is that it can help us understand how to do proper decision making today when we consider land, water, land use, water, climate, um, and when we look at the way the changing climate will affect our uh, resources and our ability to use our community and, and, and to grow. So without further ado, I just want to say thank you to Jenny Sievert and Eric Booth for being here today and uh, look forward to the presentation. So people over there can oh, see. Sure. So thank you for having us. Um, as Heather mentioned, um, I'm Jenny Seifert. I'm a science writer and outreach coordinator for the Water Sustainability and Climate Project. And I'm Eric Booth. I'm an assistant scientist in the Department of Agronomy and affiliated with Civil and Environmental Engineering as well. And I'm a scientist on this project. And uh, I'll let Jenny start mm -hmm. off. So. And so the, um, we both wear very different hats on the project, and that's sort of exemplary of this water, this, the Water Sustainability and Climate Project. We're a multidisciplinary project at the UW. Um, we have faculty from all over campus. Um, and so we bring a lot of expertise to the questions that we're asking. Um, and we are a, a project that's funded by the National Science Foundation. We're a five-year project, um, $5 million project. And we're in our, going into our last year of the project. Um, and so um, we're going to talk to you today about a big piece of the project. This is not the entire water sustainability and climate um, initiative, um, but it's a big piece of it, which is called Yahara 2070, which are a set of scenarios for the future of the Yahara watershed. Um, and we are not interested in just water. Um, what we're actually interested in are, in, uh, are what are called ecosystem services, which are the, essentially the benefits that we get from nature and that we rely on for our well-being and our survival. So these are things ranging from crop production, water quality, flood regulation, et cetera. And when we think about our watershed, we're getting all of these things from our watershed. Um, and there are changes happening um, here, such as climate change, land use change, and changes in human demand that are affecting these ecosystem services. And so we're really interested in, you know, how can we sustain and or enhance these ecosystem services into the future um, so that future generations in the watershed can have an equal or better, perhaps, quality of life here. Um, and so this is the, you know, really the big question that we're asking is how could changes in land use, climate, and human demand impact our ecosystem services for future generations in the Ahara watershed? So our research is essentially trying to answer this question. Um, but of course, this is a complex problem. Uh, there's a lot of uncertainty um, when we're talking about the future. We can't predict the future. Um, it's really hard to know how changes exactly are going to happen. Um, in addition, time frames of environmental change span generations. Um, so we're, 
you know, what we're experiencing, some of the things that we're experiencing today, future generations will also be experiencing. Um, people will also reach different conclusions about how to address these problems, and then multiple solutions are good enough. So this is, you know, really complex, and how do we wrap our head around such a problem? And just to hone in on one piece of that, the slowness of environmental change, this uh, graphic hopefully shows you um, what we mean by this. This is a, um, an image showing some of the major changes in land use um, and climate that have happened over the past two centuries in the Ahara watershed. And I've highlighted um, some of the big ones, those being the start of agriculture, the intensification of agriculture, and then urban, the intensification of urbanization. And you can see where those sort of lie on the timeline in uh, relation to the green green circle, which is where our problems, our big problems with um, algae blooms and lakes have started. So just sort of to give you a, a, um, a visual of what we mean by these changes spanning the generations. And then, of course, through time, we um, reach points where we have to make decisions when the, the consequences of our decisions are going to really affect the future. Um, and this can be a little bit overwhelming to think about um, because um, it can leave us with different pathways to different futures. And so, you know, how can we then make sense of where we want to go um, if there's so many different outcomes that could happen? Um, but of course, we can't just sort of let it just all happen if, um, and, you know, not really uh, consider how our choices might affect the future. Um, so we have to start somewhere. Um, and how we uh, are proposing that we start is that we start with talking about the future. Um, and this quote says, conversation is the heart of what we know and how we know it. It is central to both constructing the future and learning how to act on it. Um, so through Yahara 2070, we're really trying to start conversations about the future um, with the understanding that it's really hard to find the spaces and the time for those conversations. Um, we're really not programmed as humans to think about the future. Um, you know, we have deadlines, we have budget cycles, election cycles, we have to get our kids to soccer practice. It's really hard to think about 60 years from now. Um, but nonetheless, there is, it's important to create those spaces for um, those conversations. And so... Um, scenarios hopefully can help us create those spaces for those conversations. Um, when what are scenarios exactly? They are provocative and plausible stories about the future that have contrasting social and environmental conditions. They're exploring questions of what if. So what if we address this problem this way? What if we address this problem that way? What could happen? Um, they facilitate long-term thinking, meaning they give us that space to talk about the future. Um, and they help us um, with learning ways to prepare for and cope with change and address vulnerabilities that might lie in the past ahead of us. And so really, scenarios are a way of, an organized way of thinking about uncertainty and the alternatives. They give us a few um, storylines to think about um, to help us um, sort of weed through the uncertainty that otherwise can be overwhelming. And our scenarios, which we've already talked about, are called Yahara 2070. Um, and we are... Um, the reason that we picked the year 2070 is because um, it's two generations from now, so it, it, it gives us enough space for creativity um, in, in addressing um, some of the, the challenges that we're experiencing today. But it's also not that far away that we can't have some sort of connection with it. We all likely have people in our lives now that are, will still be alive in 2070. Um, and uh, these are um, sort of... The scenarios are, um, 
Sorry, I lost my train of thought. I'm going to move on. <laughs> um, so how did we go about developing Yahara 2070? Um, you know, these aren't really our sort of fantasies of the future. Um, what we did is we started with um, stories that connect us with, with future generations. Um, we, you know, as humans, we are a storytelling species. It's how we make sense of the world. Often the stories come before the science that sort of fills in the details about how the world works. Um, and this uh, quote is one that we throw around a lot in talking about Yahara 2070. It's the universe is made of stories and not of atoms. We argue it's made of both, but the stories come first. Um, and these stories, like I said, are not our own stories about the future. Um, we were really interested in what people here in the Ahara watershed thought about the future. And so we, um, you know, we can't talk to all of them, of course. So as scientists, we take samples. And so that's what we did. We took samples of perspectives from the Yahara watershed through interviews and workshops to try to understand from people here what they think about the future. What are their visions? What are their hopes? What are their fears? What challenges do they think that we will experience? Um, and these people ranged from farmers to people who work in government to people who work for nonprofits to business owners, et cetera. Um, and so we took those, with about, there were over, over 80 people that we spoke with. And from those interactions, we clustered what the, their responses into themes, and then we um, condense those um, themes into four different stories about the future. And here is just a little nutshell version of the stories. We'll go into more depth in a minute. Um, but some notes about the stories um, to help you think about them is that they each um, have um, as I mentioned before, they each have, you know, contrasting sets of choices that people make and um, biophysical events that happen um, in them. And that's the the, the point of the stories is to really compare them, so they need to have those really contrasting elements to them. Each one also um, looks at a key force of change, and that's government inaction, technologies, and values. And, you know, when you're writing a story, you need a way to frame a story. And so these forces of change are the ways that we frame these stories. And the different decisions that people make are sort of through the lens of those frames. And in a nutshell, so the um, government uh, scenario is called nested watersheds, and that looks at the role of government intervention and how it might maintain um, ecosystem services. Um, abandonment and renewal um, looks at um, the role of inaction and environmental uh, catastrophe um, and how that might um, lead to a reorganization of the region. Um, accelerated innovation looks at the role of technology in change, um, and the, the basic nutshell of that is that there's massive growth in technology in the area that um, results in sort of growth in the region. Um, and then finally, um, connected communities looks at the role of values, um, and it's the nutshell of that is there's a global shift in values towards sustainability. You know, in reality, these forces of change, they're all going to be um, have an influence on our future. And again, for the sake of our storytelling, we had to focus on, on one for each. And then we didn't forget about the atoms. Um, the atoms are, um, take the form of the outputs that our computer models are giving us. Um, essentially, our computer models are, are simulating the stories and giving us the results for what, um, what crop production could be like in the future as a result of these stories, what water quality might be like, what flood regulation might be like. Um, and this, uh, the atoms are sort of still in, um, in the works. Uh, we're currently analyzing the model results, um, so we don't have those available yet, um, but we're excited when they will be available. Um, and so 
In sum, the stories in the atoms really give us implications for future, future human well-being. Um, the set of consequences for ecosystem services really translate into what it's going to be like to live here in the Ahara watershed by 2070. And a few notes more about the scenarios is that, you know, these are not predictions of the future. We can't predict the future. Um, these are more plausible possibilities for us to think about and to, to discuss with each other. Um, there are pros and cons to each of the scenarios. There's no best case scenario. There's no worst case scenario. Um, and uh, there's also no business as usual um, scenario, and that was intentional um, because business as usual can mean a lot of things. And so we really wanted to get people to be thinking creatively about the future. So I'm going to hand the mic over to Eric. All right. Thanks, Jenny. So my main role on the project was kind of a, a translator between the narratives and these narratives with characters and plot and, and events, extreme events sometimes, and put those into a language that a computer model can understand. Um, and so the main three categories that I had to kind of whittle the story in, into were land use change, climate change, and kind of land management, or how nutrients are, are used on the landscape specifically. Um, so it was really fun. <laughs> it was very challenging. And I'm going to just give you a real brief snapshot of that process. And as Jenny mentioned, the, the model results are still in the works. And I'll give you a little teaser towards the end. But those will still be coming out in the next few months. And that will really fully round out these scenarios, kind of marrying the qualitative with the, the quantitative. But just a little bit of background before I get into some of the details on the model inputs. Um, this is the Ohara River watershed in map form, and the color scheme here I'll use on some of the maps of the future, so I just want to introduce you to it. The, the reds on here are varying degrees of urbanization, and so you can see the, the core of Madison is at kind of the center of, of the Ohara River watershed. And to the north, uh, so the watershed extends past Dane County's borders up into Columbia County in the town of Arlington, for example. And that region north of Madison is, is dominated by dairy agriculture. And so that means you have a lot of yellows, which is corn, and you have some light blues, which is alfalfa. And then as you go to the south of the city, that's mostly just corn and soybean agriculture uh, for the larger commodity markets. Um, so it's kind of a tale of, of three different uh, watersheds into one. You've got dairy, Madison urban core and then more of this corn and soybean growing region um, and then kind of the, I'm trying to be as intuitive as possible with the colors so the greens are like forest and grassland and you'll see more of those in a few of the scenarios and in order to kind of do this translation process we really needed to think hard about what are the main drivers of change in this watershed how it, how it functions and the first one is kind of intensification of dairy agriculture, and that's something that's been happening for well over uh, 50, 100 years in, in the watershed. And it's this trend towards fewer farms, but more animals per farm, and uh, there's kind of this concentration of manure on the landscape as a result. 
the second one is an increasing biofuel economy. And so this gets at more of the southern part of the watershed where we're growing corn and soy, and a big chunk of that now goes towards ethanol and soy biodiesel. And so energy needs to be part of the discussion about uh, how these different futures are going to, uh, how they look on the landscape. And then third, urban development. I think we're all familiar with Madison's growth uh, over the last several decades and how that impacts our ecosystem services, specifically uh, increasing flooding of our lakes through more impervious surfaces. And also it has an interaction with the agriculture too. It takes away land that was previously used to spread manure. And so these all interact together. And then finally, kind of hovering over all of this is uh, changes in climate. And the way we've seen that in the Ahara watershed uh, over the last several decades is an increase in annual precipitation. We've seen about an inch more per decade, kind of on average. And this is also happening uh, during heavy rainfall events. So the frequency of heavy rainfall events is also increasing. And these are, at least the increasing frequency of heavy rainfall is expected to continue into the future under a warming climate. So these are the four climate scenarios, and um, for each of the scenarios, again, we're trying to get a, a real contrasting view of the future, and so we wanted to have four different climate scenarios as well. So on the left, you see annual precipitation, and the right is annual mean temperature. So you see a pretty good spread amongst the four, um, and these are all still grounded in our best knowledge about uh, the way climate science works. So these are based on climate projections from the climate scientists on, on campus. And so there's a lot of uncertainty associated with our future climate. And we really wanted to, to utilize that spread and that uncertainty. So we'll get into uh, the first of our four scenarios, and Jenny will give a brief introduction. We're just going to give you a snapshot version. Um, the scenarios are actually, there's actual stories for them on the on our website, which we'll give you at the end. They're full-length full short stories with characters in a plot. We have short videos for the scenarios. Unfortunately, we don't have time to show you the videos here, but they're sort of like trailers, if you will. So I'm just going to give you sort of the general rundown of each one to give you an idea of what happens. Um, so Accelerated Innovation asks this question, what if we prioritize technology to solve water and climate challenges? Um, and this, um, we, in the scenario, we call it the Innovation Revolution. It um, comes out of um, a series of climate change disasters that happen around the country, and the United States decides that they're going to invest heavily in technology to, to address these challenges. Um, as a result of that revolution, um, Dane County becomes a solution center. We're, we're well positioned for something like that with the university, with, the, with government here, and with um, the businesses that we have here. Um, so we experience a growth spurt um, as a result of that, and people flock to the region for jobs, for the jobs and economic growth that result. Um, um, among the sort of innovation that comes from that is green infrastructure, which is um, meant to address some of the water challenges that we're facing, as well as um, technologies and innovative ways to mitigate climate change. Um, and just an example of one of the ways that we in this region address um, our ecological um, challenges is we sort of the United States, in a way, decides um, as a country to um, one way to address the ecological impacts of the meat and dairy um, industry is to stop eating it. 
Um, and instead, we've successfully created marketable meat alternatives, so motherless meats, um, if you will, that look and taste like the real thing. And so these sort of, a lot of our livestock operations are replaced by crop operations that are meant to feed this motherless meat um, economy. Um, nature, as a result, becomes highly engineered um, as we're trying to control it with technology. Um, so at that same time, we're putting ourselves at risk for technology failures and unintended consequences, and we're losing some of the intrinsic value of nature. So getting at some of the pros and cons, potentially, of um, this scenario. And again, some of the pros and cons are going to be in the, in the eyes of our beholders. Um, everyone has their own opinion on what's going to be an advantage or disadvantage. Um, the protagonists of the story are um, the Shedden family. They're a farming family that has adapted their lives to the innovative innovation re revolution, um, which means they've converted their livestock operation into a farm that grows um, plants and legumes for synthetic meats. That's just a nutshell of what the story looks like. And so the way that that gets translated into the landscape is uh, you now have a, a much more efficient way of, of producing meat and dairy products. You've eliminated the livestock component, and so, but you're still growing food that ultimately turns into these meat and dairy, these kind of synthetic meat and dairy products. And so that looks uh, like corn. And so you see a lot of yellow in the right-hand map in 2070. And so we're still really, really invested in um, modifying corn for high production. It just doesn't get fed to a, an animal anymore. It gets fed into a lab setting. Um, and so the other uh, part of this is the urbanization growth. So the, there's a large movement of, of people into the region, and so the urban footprint expands, and so you see that on the map as well as these red areas uh, expanding. And, um, yeah, those are the main two changes in this scenario. The climate is um, kind of the most moderate of the four that we're using, and it's slightly wetter. There's about a 3-degree Fahrenheit increase. That's kind of the, on average. There's a slight increase in the frequency of heavy rainfall events compared with today, and we see a few more heat waves, but uh, you'll see from the other three scenarios that this is the, the most moderate of the four climates. Um, nested watersheds is the government scenario. It asks, what if we reform how we govern to address water and climate challenges? Essentially, the trigger for change here is a national water crisis, um, which causes public outrage and desperation, and government reform comes out of this, um, which is sort of similar to what happened in the Dust Bowl of the 1930s when the New Deal came about. Um, so the Water Security Act is passed in 2040, which essentially redraws the boundaries of water governance around the major watersheds in, in the United States. States, and this is actually testing out an idea that um, the former or the, um, the pioneer John Wesley Powell um, put forth when he was exploring the American West was to govern water by watershed. Um, and so the Wisconsin is divided into the Upper Mississippi Watershed Unit and the Great Lakes Watershed Unit. Um, the federal, um, how it works, the federal government creates goals for watersheds, and then watersheds are, um, have to design programs and incentives to meet those goals. Um, an example of how this plays out in the watershed or in the Yahara is that um, 
Farmers now treat um, water as though it were a crop, and so they're given incentives to um, essentially farm water, so to make sure that they're um, replenishing water resources on their land as well as preventing nutrient pollution. And then cities are also given incentives to install green infrastructure to um, manage um, urban runoff. Um, the protagonists of the story are um, Lou and Greta Donaldson, who own a dairy farm, um, and Rachel Harris, who's a former um, U.S. legislator for, for Wisconsin who was instr instrumental in the passing of the Water Security Act. So what this looks like on the landscape is uh, the policy change essentially moves uh, row crop agriculture out of the watershed and instead replaces it with perennial biofuels in, in, in the form of grasses. And so this is done um, primarily from a water quality perspective due to these stringent regulations that have been passed. Um, and so we see a lot more green on the map on the right-hand side, which again indicates kind of uh, these biofuel, perennial biofuel crops and uh, a growth in forests as well. Um, there are more people in the region, but they are in the same urban footprint. It just gets uh, a lot more dense, uh, again, having to do with uh, some of the water-related regulations. For the climate, it's uh, a little bit warmer than our, our, our previous one. Uh, it's about seven degrees by the end, uh, warmer. And it gets slightly wetter towards the beginning and then a little drier uh, than today. And again, this kind of just gets at the uncertainty associated with our climate projections. Uh, it could get, it, it's more likely it'll get a little wetter, but we also wanted to have some, uh, a little bit of variability there to see what would happen in drier circumstances as well. And the extreme rainfall, again, increases a little bit more in frequency and a few more heat waves. Connected Communities looks at the question, what if we shift our values in response to water and climate challenges? Um, what happens in this scenario is a global youth movement mobilizes um, in response to climate disasters and political gridlock around the world, and they catalyze a global value shift towards less consumption, um, which they call the Great Transition. Um, by, nine, by 2070, um, sustainability has become the new normal. Um, the value shift has reoriented, reoriented society around building community and consuming less. Um, communities and cities are built more densely um, with smaller environmental footprints and agriculture shifts from large-scale farming to small-scale farms with high crop diversity um, and prevalent grass-fed operations. Um, climate change mitigation is done at a global scale. Um, the, as, a, as an example, there's um, and how some of it plays out is uh, uh, prices for fuel now incorporate environmental and social costs um, which um, has enabled re renewable energy to grow. However, it also makes certain conveniences that we have today harder to come by, such as air travel. Um, the protagonists um, of the story are Rosa and Amelia, who are a grandmother and a granddaughter, and Rosa was a community leader in the youth movement. The landscape in this one, uh, again, it's this values change that leads to a, a dietary change, actually, uh, at a nationwide scale, away from meat and dairy towards uh, more vegetables, fruits, legumes, small grains that are now grown. Um, and so you see the map is a little bit greener as a consequence, and so this is more pasture because there are pasture-based operations in this scenario. Um, and the urban areas, again, stay 
fairly constant uh, relative to today. There's not much growth, and there's actually some conversion of open spaces in the urban core to things like prairies and other kind of restorations. Um, yeah, so that's the land. And the climate in connected communities is uh, slightly wetter. It's about six degrees warmer. And again, we have that a few more heavy rainfall events and heat waves. And there's a couple of floods in this one that kind of test out these, this new community. And finally, we have abandonment and renewal, which asks the question, what if we aren't prepared for water and climate challenges? Um, essentially, the nutshell of this uh, um, scenario is that a food crisis um, results from a series of climate disasters around the country. The Midwest feels pressure to increase food production, which exacerbates our water quality problems here. Um, but the, the urgency of the food crisis overpowers the urgency of, of, our, of our polluted waters. Um, the unfortunate result of that is that environmental health catastrophe results. Um, a new species of cyanobacteria that emits toxic fumes um, emerges in the lakes and kills thousands of people and causes thousands more to flee the area. And where this scenario came from is that when we were interviewing people, they, um, a theme that came out is that one way to sort of uh, address some of our environmental challenges here is to have a, a, a lower population. And so we were thinking about how could possibly this area have a lower population and well, an environmental catastrophe might, might do it for that. For that. But, um, and another thing, the, a, the, spe the species of, of cyanobacteria we talk about in the scenario doesn't actually exist today, but is not outside the realm of scientific plausibility for such a species to evolve. Um, in the disaster's wake, um, a transformation occurs in the region. Essentially, um, ecosystems grow back with wild abandon, since there are a few humans here, um, and many species of wildlife come back to the region. Um, the few people that live here um, are living on subsistence farming communities or in dense urban clusters away from the lakes, which are still a danger. Um, and most of these people are either survivors of the disaster or they're mavericks looking for a new, a new life. Um, and the protagonists of this story are Daisy and Felix, who are a young couple that come to the Yahara to start a new life, and they live on a subsistence farm. So widespread change is part of this scenario uh, after this uh, event in the 2030s. And as Jenny mentioned, uh, agriculture kind of goes wild and basically turns mostly into grassland. And that's where you see that big green spots uh, kind of around the lakes. And the, the urban areas, at least the low intensity ones, also degrade and turn into grasslands. And so you can see that on the map as well. Uh, the remaining agriculture that you see to the far north and to the far south is uh, associated with these small uh, close communities, and it's all pretty much staying there in, in local markets. The climate in this one is the most severe of the four. It is much wetter in that earlier period. You have a couple of really large floods, uh, 2031, 2035, and uh, by the end we see temperatures get almost 9 degrees uh, warmer. And the, the extreme rainfalls, like I mentioned, associated with the floods, definitely increased. And in 2033, there's a large heat wave, um, and that's also associated with this uh, cyanobacterial bloom. Back to Jenny. So what can you do with Yahara 2070? We have these four stories. We have these model results. What do we do with them? Um, 
you know, from a scientific, the scientific value of them is to really sort of un to understand what are some possibilities for the future and how might we cope with those possibilities. Um, from sort of the general public perspective, um, these are really tools um, to help us be think about the future. So they're a tool to help us prepare for some of the vulnerabilities that our model results can show us that um, might be in the path ahead of us. Um, it's a framework for weighing some of the trade-offs um, and choices that we face today. Um, and it's also a backdrop for our own priorities um, that we, that, um, and thinking about the potential changes that could um, affect those priorities. Um, and finally, it's an opportunity to engage your constituents in conversations about the future um, and think beyond the business as usual and try to really think creatively about um, how we might address some of the problems that we're facing today. So as Jenny mentioned, the model results are still almost here, but I wanted to just give a, a quick taste of, of what some of these results might look like and how they could potentially be of use. So in, in the abandonment renewal uh, scenario, there is a, a, a big flood in 2031, and this is a storm kind of similar to what Lake Delton experienced in 2008. And so if that storm was centered over the Ohara watershed, we could potentially see something similar here. And so this is the, the water surface of Monona, and then the, the elevation associated with that kind of spread out across the isthmus. And we do see a lot of low-lying areas inundated as a result. Um, and so this isn't the only scenario that has floods. This is just the biggest one to just kind of show what we, could sh what we can display with some of these scenario results. And something to just uh, kind of keep in mind that we did get a lot of rain in 2008, but there were other areas that got even more. And, and we, we have a, a vulnerability here in the Madison area associated with our slowly draining lakes. Another big concern, and we've heard a lot of concern about this um, recently, is water quality. And the graph I'm showing up in the upper right is the total phosphorus concentration in Lake Mendota in the summertime for each of these four scenarios. And these are preliminary results, um, but they essentially show that it's really, really challenging to improve water quality. Um, we don't see any of the four scenarios getting much better than today in terms of water quality, even though there's a ton of changes on the landscape. And um, that's likely due to a couple of different factors that we're still trying to tease out. The climate is wetter, and so it's just that much more challenging. When it's a wetter climate, you have more runoff, you have more opportunity for phosphorus from, to move from land to water. And phosphorus is just a really tricky element. It is stored in our soils in the watershed, and it's very hard to, to change that amount of phosphorus in a, in a short amount of time. And so this legacy of our agricultural practices lives on for many decades into the future. And so by 2070, we just don't see a, a ton of change in the positive direction. Um, and in terms of the kinds of conversations that the scenarios can help us with, um, you know, together we're, we're supposed to be looking at the before scenarios together and try to think about what are those cross-cutting questions that we could ask about them, such as what are the worst threats and how can we avoid them? What are the best ideas about the future and how can we make them happen? And then what is our desirable future? What do we actually want um, and how can we get there? So these are the kinds of conversations that we hope the scenarios can generate. And in terms of um, 
uh, serving as a backdrop for our own priorities, I understand that one of the priorities of the Common Council is, is social equity in the region. And so we can think about what can these scenarios, how can we think about social equity in each of these scenarios? Um, and specifically, how can we make sure, you know, we have the set of ecosystem services that we need from this region. How can we make sure that they're equitably distributed across everybody here? Um, and this idea of a fifth scenario is essentially this vision of a desirable and plausible future. You know, there, here are some possibilities we can start these conversations with. Where do we want to go? Um, and this quote, I think, is a good, um, a good example of what we mean by this. But if you want to build a ship, don't start with collecting the wood, cutting the plank, and assigning the work, but awaken people to longing for the wide and open sea. This essentially is saying that in order to get the future we want, we've got to inspire people to, 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 towards that vision, and then we can start figuring out how to get there. Um, I just wanted to alert you to a couple of engagement opportunities with the scenarios. Uh, the first is a discussion guide that is in development um, and essentially uses the um, Yahara 2070 scenarios to start conversations about the future. Um, you dig a little bit deeper into the possibilities that they put forth um, and start envisioning your own desirable future um, and how you might get there. And so this might be hopefully um, will be a tool that you can use in your communities to start these conversations. Um, it is still in development. I am looking for groups to pilot it. If anyone is interested, let me know. <laughs> Um, the second opportunity is we just launched last week. It's called the Our Waters, Our Future Writing Contest. It's essentially an opportunity to write, for people to write their own um, scenarios about the future. We're looking for visions of um, resilient and desirable futures for water and people. So we're trying to get beyond some of the gloom and doom narratives that we typically hear and getting people to think about what is it they actually want to see in the future. Um, Information about that writing contest is at that link. The winning story will be published in Madison Magazine. We're excited to be working with several partners, including Madison Magazine, the UW Center for Limnology, Sustained Dane, and the Wisconsin Academy of Arts, Sciences, and Letters on this contest. So, uh, and submissions are due February 1st, so please tell your um, networks about it. Um, and finally, yeah, any questions? This is information about where you can find more information about the scenarios. Yahar2070.org is the website. Um, and if you do social media, consider following us. Thank you. Does anybody have uh, any questions? I think we've got some time before the meeting. Yeah. <laughs> Great. So when you're talking about in a short period of time, you don't believe that phosphorus will change in our lakes. So the short period of time is 55 years, right? So, yeah. Okay. So let so me. What is, what is a period of time that you think we could see change? Because we're trying to change right. it. Yeah, yeah. This is kind of the one of the more challenging issues that we address on this project because you, you, you can't lose hope on this problem. Um, okay. and, and the things that are going on in the watershed right now are critical, and, they, and it's critically important for those to continue and um, advance if we want to even keep up with some of these projected changes in, in climate. It's, it's just going to be harder if there are going to be more frequent heavy rainfall events. Um, so I think there's a lot of value in, in, in kind of keeping at today's water quality 
uh, levels as much as it is hard to, to sometimes just think about that. But um, there are other scenarios that we don't cover, though. This is another thing I want to mention. So we only have four here. There can certainly be a fifth where change maybe occurs a few decades before some of the changes that we have in the four scenarios. Um, we kind of did that intentionally, having some of these major landscape changes occur more in the 2030s and 40s because we want this project to live on. And if we have a lot of big changes in the next few years, then people are probably not going to pay much attention to the project in five years. So. Um, I think there are opportunities to kind of do some larger scale changes in the next maybe 5, 10, 15 years that could then lead to improvements in water quality on a shorter time frame. And there are other engineering examples uh, that we don't cover in the scenarios um, and technology improvements that we just haven't thought of. So the, I guess the, the main gist of what I'm trying to say is from a landscape scale, there's so much phosphorus currently in the soil. It's going to take a really hard, long time to, to draw that down. And the soil phosphorus is really what drives water quality um, in the lakes. Mm -hmm. So one of the things we do have to look at the capacity to control right now is um, the tenny locks and the lake levels. Mm -hmm. um, and did your group come up with any suggestions or scenarios or, or optimal lake levels of Lake Mendota that we should have to mitigate against the flooding in particular? Yeah, that's not a, a specific um, task for our project at this point. Um, we were focused primarily on the scenarios, but um, we can certainly kind of work on that with people that are interested. And, um, yeah, it's, it's a really challenging kind of um, optimization problem because uh, there is no perfect kind of lake level management plan um, because it's so dependent on rainfall in a, in a few weeks. And so we don't know what that's going to be. Um, so... We, we are more than welcome to, to, to talk to those that are interested in, in updating those kinds of plans. And we do also um, work with others in civil and environmental engineering that kind of have the hydrodynamic models of the lakes. Our model is a little bit cruder in terms of, of, of lake levels. So, um, yeah, it, it's, it's just we're open to any kind of conversation about that. So the question was, how do we foresee people discussing the scenarios? I think I'll let Jenny handle that one. Um, well, I think the scenarios are, um, they provide possibilities for us to think about. Um, they um, help us think about what is desirable and what is undesirable for the future um, based on some possibilities that could happen. Um, and they help us think about what are some of those good ideas that we want to try to make happen and what are some of those threats that we don't want to make happen. So it sort of helps us to sort of gives us a framework for those conversations. 
Does that help you answer your question? That's, uh, um, how do you plan to get people involved in discussing the scenarios? Um, that is, uh, we've done some workshops through um, the county in the past year um, that have sort of, we've tested out different ways of talking about the scenarios. Um, and this, the discussion guide is an opportunity um, to, um, for groups to sort of talk about them on their own. Um, I think it's really going to be um, generating the interest among people and groups in, in this area to um, organize their own conversations around the, the scenarios. So the question was, what happens when our NSF funding goes away? Uh, we look for more. That's what we're currently uh, doing. We're hoping that another call for funding comes out this spring from the National Science Foundation uh, in a related program. The Water Sustainability and Climate Program uh, no longer will exist, um, but it will transition to something focused on the food, energy, and water nexus. So a lot of these issues can fit uh, we think pretty nicely into something like that. But beyond National Science Foundation, we'll, we're looking for funding from a lot of different sources. And the, the UW's graduate school has potential funding for what's called bridge funding to kind of keep groups or, or teams together during their look for, for new funding. So I guess long story short is we're not going anywhere. We're all very committed to this issue, and we understand that a lot of people are interested in us continuing to look at it. It's not going to be one of these things that just ends up on a shelf and collects dust. So, yeah, does that answer your question? Thanks. Yep. Two questions that related. One is, um, to what extent do the scenarios and the models, I guess probably not the models at all, but the scenarios that you've developed um, differentiate between levels of government. Obviously, you're talking to local government here, but a lot of what I heard was more at sort of the federal level of government or potentially at the state level in, in terms of the changes that you're imagining. And so that's the first part of the question. And the second part of the question is, if you're hoping that people in the community will have these conversations, what do you hope comes out of that are you expecting to, to help people then, you know, come back to the council and say these are the pieces that we'd like you to work on or these are the directions we want you to go or to send that to the federal government or what's the action that you hope people will take out of this? Sure. So, um, yeah, I, I guess the different levels of government um, question is, is it depends on the scenario. So, uh for instance, in abandonment and renewal, there are so many crises across the country that it kind of occupies all of the resources of the federal government. And um, so they're kind of out of the picture when things start to happen in the Ahara. Um, the other ones, so nested watersheds is definitely kind of a, a top-down approach to uh, policy change. So there's a lot of the, the, the big water act is a federal act. And then the, the watershed units are now kind of considered to be the state entities in charge of, of water. So that's, I guess, more of a top-down approach. But 
the, the details are in the storylines about the different levels of government and how they interact. Um, I don't know if you want to add anything else to that. Yeah, sure. Um, in terms of you know actions that we hope come out of this um, or come out of conversations, um, I would say that you know the, in terms of our outreach goals, we're really trying to get people to think in a more long-term way, um, and in doing so, um, you know, if they if communities can or groups can sort of develop a vision for the long-term future um, that they want to see happen. Um, that will hopefully lay the groundwork for some really creative thinking about what we can do in the future. So um, that might get us outside the box of what we normally think about when we are thinking more short term. Um, so I think that, you know, we're not about advocating for any actions in particular, but we're, we're trying to encourage people to think in a different way. Um, and hopefully from that, from that different kinds of thinking, they can, there can be um, some more cutting-edge solutions that sort of address some of the problems that we're facing today, and then they can come to their alder or to whatever um, groups that they belong to with these ideas and with these visions that can help them get there. I just want to add that, um, you know, we're learning, too, from this process, um, and if you all have ideas for how you might um, use the scenarios in engaging your constituents or groups that you work with, please let me know. Um, this is a learning process, a two-way learning process, and um, I think we're, um, you know, I've been, you know, really trying to figure out what are the best ways that people can really engage with these scenarios, and I, you know, hopefully we all can bring our collective knowledge together and figure that out. <laughs> For this particular project, or if it's also being used in other kinds of settings or for different kind of problem solving? Yeah, so the question was about the scenario process itself and um, how it was done and if it's being done in other places. It, at this scale, it's pretty rare. Um, most of the, the scenarios that we've looked at, and we did an extensive kind of look at the literature, and Steve Carpenter on the project is very involved in, in uh, scenarios work. He was part of the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment, which was kind of at the global scale. And global scenarios are, are fairly common, um, but it's hard to, to get people to resonate with global scenarios sometimes. Uh, so we thought that the watershed scale would really be an interesting place to, to use scenarios because I think people can identify with a watershed. They can kind of drive across it, you know, during their daily activities. And so at that scale, there's not a ton of scenarios out there. It's starting to grow. There's a lot in Europe um, that are at these smaller scales. But once you get to these smaller scales, you kind of um, you have to be pretty detailed about what happens. And so these maps are are an example of kind of the richness and detail that you need to, to invest in. So I don't think it's been that common uh, for, for those reasons. So, so we have a scenario planning tool here that we're yeah. beginning to implement, the urban footprint. Is that something that you could make use of? You want to talk? So, uh, is, or so that somebody could, I suppose. Yeah, so you've been in touch with, um, actually, do you want to talk about Kirk C at all? Um, Conversations about it. Well, I know that, that CARP-C is interested in um, coming up with some scenarios over the next few years. And um, 
Yes, certainly we are open to conversations about how those types of scenario activities could relate to, to what we have done. Um, I think what's maybe unique about our approach is we, we try to engage with as many people within the watershed and, and, and develop kind of a sense of what they think are, are the worst case or the best case scenarios of the future and, and the major drivers of change. Um, but certainly there are a lot of different ways to come up with, with scenarios. And again, I, I guess the other way that differentiates us is we have these models at our disposal. And so um, these are models that could definitely be used for, for other scenarios as long as you were able to develop kind of the richness of detail that's kind of required. And we could kind of help with that process potentially. Thank you. And I just want to add that scenarios have a history outside of science as well. Um, you know, they really got their start in the military after World War II. Um, and um, some of the, one the most famous example of, of scenario use is Shell Oil, actually. They use scenarios to um, sort of anticipate uh, potential changes and challenges, and that those scenarios got them through the, the oil crises of the 1970s and 80s. So there's a history of scenarios outside of science, and then our sort of we're adding to the history of scenarios in science. Yeah, I wanted to mention that uh, having participated in those scenarios, I was really moved by the unique emotions and reactions and just dialogues that they uh, stirred when we broke out into small groups. So I was really grateful that you did that approach. Uh, secondly, I'm wondering as part of your study, and are, how, how are you dealing with the issues that are paralyzing so many governments and regions and people in terms of the the, the conflicts and the rigid agendas and so on. Is this part of, are you dealing with that in part of the scenarios? Um, I guess to the second question first, um, we do have a, a social scientist on the project that's very interested in, um, or a team of social scientists, I should say, in, in kind of regional governance and these different layers of governance and how they interact. Um, yeah, we don't go into a, a ton of detail on how complex some of those interactions are in each of the four scenarios. I think there's hints here and there, but it's something she and her team are very interested. Dina Rissman is the, is the, the faculty member on the team that's, that does the social science work. But um, yeah, she's kind of looked more at recent governance and the, the history of water quality management in the watershed. Um, and then, yeah, as far as your, your first comments, that's great. Thanks for the positive feedback. So that's exactly what we're trying to, to go for here, is to offer space for people to, to think about the future and emotionally engage in what they think uh, should be the future. And it kind of gets back to the other question about what is our goal, what do we want people to, to do with the scenarios. And um, it's kind of hard for us to say what should happen, right? That's more of a normative thing, and scientists can't really speak much to that. But we can provide a space for people to think about the future in ways that they might have not previously. And then what we can do as scientists is, is kind of walk them through the process of what are the logical consequences of those different scenarios in terms of water quality, for instance, flooding. 
So. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks a lot.